Loving Father, we ask that as we gather this morning, um, you would feed us and nurture us by your Spirit, uh, through the truth of your Word, that you be shaping and moulding us and growing us to be more and more like your Son, Jesus. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Uh, This is talk number four in our series, uh, Unpacking Forgiveness. Uh, You might remember talk one, uh, we were reminded to take Jesus' yoke upon us and to learn from him. In talk number two, we heard about what God's forgiveness is like. Uh, We were reminded that it's full of love and grace that is unending. Uh, God's forgiveness is a willingness, a commitment to the repentant. Uh, But things may never be the same. There are still consequences. And talk three was that we are to forgive as God first forgave us. Uh, But we do not weaponise forgiveness. I hope you heard that last week. In any conflict, humility is required on both sides. Forgiveness is about the resolution of conflict. And certainly... Uh, I think we'd all agree it's unwise to live with conflict. Uh, The Proverbs put it so vividly in Proverbs 21, 19, it says, It's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. That's what the Proverbs says. Um, Proverbs 17, verse 19, Whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. And whoever builds a high gate invites destruction. So be careful about putting walls up. It's true there are too many who prefer to chase quarrels because they love the drama rather than escape them. But most, I think, long for harmony at home, don't we? We long for uncomplicated friendships in our community and unity, most especially at church. Because only fools are quick to quibble. Is that biblical? Yeah, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3. It's to one's honour and to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. And yet, despite our longing for harmony, uh, it eludes us. We, We don't like conflict, surely, but there just seems to be so much of it. Now imagine saying to Jesus, hey Jesus, you know, there's just way too much conflict in my life. How can I get rid of some of the quarrelling or at least solve differences in the right way? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew 18. It's just four verses this morning. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, well, they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Now this is interesting because in chapter 17, Jesus has said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. And on the third day, 
he'll be raised to life. Jesus says to his mates, I'm going to be killed. And so then when we come to chapter 18, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That the future leaders of the church would then be asking about who's going to be top dog, right? No, that's appalling. Picture the scene. Jesus called over a little child as the answer. He puts a child among them. And he basically says by his actions, Behold, here is the answer to your question about greatness. And then he says, so you need to change. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now note, Jesus' point is not that children are innocent and pure. Who here believes that children are innocent and pure? No, surely not. Uh, We were all children once, right? And Psalm 51 offers instruction about that, I think. So what is Jesus on about? He's on about getting the vertical relationship right. See, children, do they depend on their parents? Yeah. And Jesus invites us to see ourselves in a proper relationship to our Heavenly Father. We are completely dependent on Him. The prospect that we need God is, of course, a pride swallower, and it requires humility. We are dependent on God our Father. That's number one. And the other thing for us this morning, I think, is status. Children in this context, in the ancient Near East, they were expected to sit on the silent fringe. And, and, and by some measure, they, they just were insignificant. They certainly did not stand in the vocal centre where Jesus has put this child. The general status of children in society was modest, and so children didn't really have status, and they certainly did not chase status. They listened... They obeyed from the fringe. And so Jesus' first point is to tell his disciples to be humble, to be dependent children who accept their low standing. Biblical humility, then, is seeing oneself in a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father, being completely dependent on him, and it also does not chase status. At the same time, Jesus did not tell the disciples to abandon the pursuit of greatness. The whole dispute between the disciples happened because they set their sights on greatness, didn't they? Jesus could have told them that, no, that's sinful and just plain wrong to aspire on any level. But instead, Jesus redefines greatness and he tells them how to pursue it and he says, Look at the child. Look at the child. It's a bit like Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, 
where Jesus says in verse 43, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In these verses, Jesus encourages the disciples, yes, to pursue greatness. And the way he taught them to pursue it was by serving one another, by being truly humble. And so true humility as the legitimate path to greatness is also taught elsewhere in the Bible. So back to Proverbs 18 verse 12. It says, Before destructions one heart is haughty, which means proud, but humility comes before honour. That's plain, isn't it? Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honour. See, if you want to be great, if you want to get honour, here is how you go about it. Rather than thrusting yourself into a place of prominence, rather than aspiring to the spotlight, look at me, look at me go, rather than that, be like a child. Assume nothing. Recognise your complete and utter dependence on God. Serve, serve, serve others for the glory of God, not for yourself, and wait for honour to come from and through him. Because, you know, the way up, the way up is down. And you might go, but Adam, I thought we were unpacking forgiveness. Well, yeah, we are. This is the context for all that follows in chapter 18. Chapter 18 is all about forgiveness. So how does humility help Adam? Well, first, humility nips conflict in the bud. In one way or another, selfish pride causes all quarrels and fights. We heard that from the reading from James that Shirley read out for us. But secondly, if we, if we are all truly humble, then when we do have conflicts, well, they'll be resolved really quickly, I think. And so do we see a key ingredient in resolving conflict is humility. Let me give you an example. Even in a pastor's family, there are occasional conflicts. I know that you're stunned to learn that, right? But it's true. It does happen from time to time. You know how children contend for the front seat. Have we seen that? And taking turns might seem to work, but sometimes there's some random exception to the rule. And, of course, when my children are fighting over the front seat... We're usually travelling, you know, not a hundred kilometres. It's more like one or two really long kilometres. So there's so, so much at stake. And so the children, look, it is only sometimes to their credit. It's not that often. 
But sometimes arguing about the front seat is a thing. And be assured, they get that from their mum's side of the family. Because <laughs> the Draycots grew up without a car, so who doesn't fit? <laughs> and of course, what is the strategy of their father? How is their pastoral father going to resolve this? Well, you know how it's going to go, don't you? The scowl might appear. Okay, it does appear. There's some, sometimes there's pointing, like get in the car, stop your fighting, look at the time, uh, they'll get the low growl, find a seat, or if it's really bad, find a seat or else. And of course, be calm, it's righteous anger, isn't it? Because I'm right. Okay, and so my children pile into the car and they avoid any further conflict. And can you hear them now sitting in the car praising me and saying, Oh, Dad, we're so glad you're our father. Can you hear them saying that? No, you can't. Of course you can't. And then after that, it's someone's got a window down while the air conditioning is on. And can you change the song, Dad? And so it goes. Now let's suppose, let's suppose that everyone in my family had been acting with biblical humility, even when it comes to the front car seat. How would, they, how would that have affected the whole situation? Well, in the first place, we would not have had the conflict because my children would not have been seeking for themselves the privilege of the front seat. That's simple. And actually, they're pretty good at that, to be, to be, to be, to be said. But suppose that for one reason or another, through the purest of intentions, there was confusion about the seating and a misunderstanding. And again, childlike humility would have ensured that the problem was resolved quickly. Sorry, just a misunderstanding and they would have moved on. But the most convicting thing about that incident, of course, is to analyse my own conduct, not the children's conduct. See, why did I seek to resolve a situation with angry gestures and motions? Why did I do that? Was it because I was humbly seeking to teach my children and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Was that what was going on? The answer, of course, is no. No, no. Now, I was frustrated with them because I allowed my own pride to get in the way. My angry reaction is about me, it's not about them. And I succeeded only in elevating a conflict to the next level because I did not exhibit an attitude of childlike humility, even as a father. Now, as you absorb that, I've shared a bit about me and I make myself a bit vulnerable as I do that. But the next question has to be, well, what about you? Well, what about you? How would you have unpacked forgiveness differently in your most recent conflict if you had responded with biblical humility? How about you? The last conflict you engaged in. Well, what caused the conflict in the first place? 
How would true humility have helped you to resolve the conflict? Would it be bigger or smaller now? Or non-existent now? And you might say, but Adam, it's so hard to be humble. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Is that the words of the song? Yeah, you all know it. That's interesting. (laughs) But the reality is true humility can be very elusive. Pride is not limited to arrogance or cockiness. It's not just an inflated opinion of oneself. Pride is any way of putting self into central focus. Pride puts you at the middle. Look at me. Pride might express itself in any of the following ways. See, are you overly critical? Discernment's okay, it's good. The Bible encourages discernment. But discerning people sometimes go a step too far in feeling the need to critique everything. Pride is the root of the problem. Are you insecure? Well, I wasn't before, but I might be now. Are you insecure? Insecurity often betrays a person who is too narrowly focused on self. Are you overly sensitive? Do you imagine criticisms when they have not been given? Are you impatient with the shortcomings of others? Do you get your hackles up when people dare say no to you? Do you find yourself easily embarrassed by your friends and family? Are you given to worry? A worry that might betray some kind of self-reliance or at least relying on someone other than God. If you couldn't find yourself in those little list of questions, you're still not off the hook because we all struggle in some way with centering too much on ourselves. As C.S. Lewis said, if you think you are not conceited, then you are very conceited indeed. He also said there is no fault, that's pride, which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. He describes pride as a spiritual cancer. Pride is a spiritual cancer. And so the question then is not if you struggle with pride, but how how you struggle with pride because if we're really going to unpack forgiveness one of the first things to do is to see how self-centeredness or how pride shows up in our life remember pride is often why conflicts happen in the first place and pride often prevents forgiveness and resolution from happening And once we've identified where pride shows up in our lives, we can determine to put off that sinful behaviour, to be made new in the attitude of our minds, and to be put uh, on the right behaviour. That's Ephesians 4. But understand, you will never become more humble through sheer force of will. If all we do is tell ourselves over and over again, be more humble, be more humble, be more humble, it will not work. It will not work. The reason we struggle with pride in the first place 
It's because we're all wrapped up in ourselves. And if our only remedial strategy is to look inward, well, we're just compounding the problem. It's reinforced. And so the only way to grow in true humility is to take our eyes off ourselves and to meditate on the beauty and glory that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Humility is a matter of perspective, of seeing ourselves in right relationship with God. And if you want to be humble, then grow in our understanding of the majesty and greatness of God. That's why Isaiah 40 is so good for us. In Isaiah 40, we can reflect deeply on the vastness of our Lord. So you savour these questions about the person and work of God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has done that? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him, the, taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust and on it goes. If we begin to get a glimpse of the vast glory of God, we will realise that many of our conflicts are like two fleas arguing about who is bigger while standing in front of Mount Everest. It's, it's just ridiculous. And so we quibble over small differences of opinion. We don't, we're no good at reserving judgment. While the vastness of Almighty God soars into the heavens. And we need to stop looking at one another relative to ourselves, or better, stop looking in the mirror. And we need to turn our eyes to the loveliness of Christ in his word. Because the way up is down. The way up is down. Jesus does not tell his disciples to abandon the pursuit of greatness. No, he redefines it. And he teaches them that humility is the proper way to pursue it. True humility is not self-deprecation. Biblical humility is seeing ourselves as completely dependent on God and serving others all to his glory. We achieve humility only by seeing and savouring Christ. And the more we see Christ, the more we will be truly humble. The more conflicts we will avoid, and the more easily the, uh, the ones we do encounter will be resolved. So let me close with the words from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility... Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset 
as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own good, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The way up is down. Amen.